Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Five. Advice. The careers advisor taps the rubber tip of his pencil on his teeth. Rabbit twitches heavy glasses back up his nose. He glances down at the carefully completed sheaf of tests and questionnaires and reads the man's name from the front of the file. If I may summarise, the man nods. You are dissatisfied with your current employment, training as a company secretary for a brewery, despite the future promise of strong remuneration and, presumably, a good deal of free beer. A pause. Your academic record is... The advisor looks a little downcast. Begins again. You have few formal qualifications, but, brightening, are more than willing to commit to further study. The man fidgets. Nods again. You are a thorough, practical man, have a strong eye for detail, enjoy being outside. You list your hobbies as... The nose twitches. The glasses begin their slow descent. Hitchhiking, racket sports and, glancing at the report, looking at buildings. Hmm. The man nods a third time and waits. Expectant. Ordinarily, I would recommend a trade. Hands-on, decent money, could become a skilled craftsman with time. The man pulls a face. But perhaps a little too working class for... My mother, says the man. Quite. Architecture? But you are already... He makes a rapid mental calculation. Twenty-nine, and the training is... Lengthy, arduous, and you may want to start a family. Another pause. The advisor settles himself. Have you considered building surveying? The man, who had begun to radiate gloom, looks up. You'd need a couple of half-decent A-levels, night school, that sort of thing. But it's a profession, letters after your name... Plenty of crawling around lofts keep you fit. Money's not great, but right up your street, I should say. Forgive the pun. The advisor taps his pencil on his teeth, pushes his glasses firmly up his nose with his forefinger, and draws the session to a close. Six. Things fall apart. The man enrolls at night school, gets 100% for effort and scrapes the two passes he needs to secure a place at a polytechnic in the town where his father had trained years before. His wife works nights at the local hospital, the older nurses regaling her in the small hours with stories of her late father-in-law's wildness, his hard-drinking professionalism mythologised by 1,000 late-night retellings. The man studies his learning cumbersome and thorough. He buys a Reader's Digest manual and teaches himself decorating, carpentry, plumbing and electrics, renovating their house in the lengthy student holidays, the cricket commentary chuntering half-heard on the radio. When the house is finished, they start a family, have a girl, move south for the man's first job, 
and have a second child, a boy. The man embraces village life, running in fancy dress for the annual plague road plod, returning bruised from weekly judo lessons in the village hall. He takes a second job in a local pub to make ends meet, coming back after midnight three times a week, clothes and hair reeking of cigarette smoke. At one of his weekly judo sessions, he lands awkwardly after a heavy throw and breaks two ribs, wincing as he pulls pints, customers mistaking his scowl for unfriendliness. Celebrating the birth of his third child, the man gets drunk, driving his car gently into a ditch, from which he emerges grinning, unscathed. The pressures of work and a young family begin to take their toll, and his lifelong melancholia deepens into depression. His wife persuades him to visit the family doctor, who, in the absence of effective therapies, recommends the church as cure. The man begins to attend local evangelical services, drawn by the potent mix of contemporary music, rebellion against the religious establishment, and the offer of bottomless paternal love. One Sunday morning, arms awkwardly aloft, he experiences a moment of ecstatic revelation and converts to Christianity, his uncompromising atheism replaced by an unbending religiosity. The man's mother describes him as having turned over two leaves and mourns the change in her once vibrant, wayward son. The man's third child does not thrive as expected, her small head swollen with excess cranial fluid. A shunt is fitted, the tiny girl lying immobile, face down for two weeks as she recovers from surgery. And a long process of rehabilitation has begun. The man hears of a school by the sea that helps children with disabilities and finds a job nearby, staying with a vicar and his wife during the week and returning home at the weekend but he is isolated by the distance from his family's fierce affections, has too much time to brood, toing and froing on the train. Despite his newfound faith, his depression worsens. One night, overwhelmed by a sense of his own worthlessness, he attempts suicide. The vicar's wife finds him in the bloodied bathwater, unconscious but still breathing, and calls for help, cradling the man's head clear of the water. The man returns home, bandaged wrists hidden beneath long sleeves. His boss visits and he loses his job. His wife gathers herself, stretches their meagre funds and nurses the man back to health, placing each of the children on the bed in turn to play. After an hour or two, they ignore the bandages and insist on back-to-back -back stories and rough-and-tumble. Slowly, the man relearns the depths of his family's affection and the inner monologue that had so nearly overwhelmed him loses a little of its power. As the days pass, he gets stronger, and he and his wife have a much-needed argument, she venting weeks of frustration at their poverty, his selfishness, the hurt that she, apparently, was not worth living for. 
they eventually fall asleep, exhausted, back to back, an ocean of sheets and blankets between them. In the night, an exploratory foot touches a leg. A hand rests on an arm and then encircles a waist. A soft cheek buries in the crook of a still, strong neck. The man's convalescence is over. The next morning he gets up with the kids, puts on his suit and tie, and sets about finding work, his wife tapping out his CV on the portable typewriter. He finds a job, a junior position with a lengthy commute, and with his returning strength, he finds new purpose as he lifts and carries and pushes his youngest child with inexhaustible patience. Seven. Survive the Savage Sea. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The man is blown along into middle age. His wife teaches him to sail. He collects autobiographies of solo adventures at sea and takes his family on gentle holidays through inland waterways, wind buffeting his thinning hair, a child nestled into the man-sweat of his armpit, crooked between body and rudder. For every day of every year of his fifth decade, he rises early to study the Bible, a self-directed, fundamentalist education that eschews nuance and uncertainty in favour of the comfort of a rigid clarity that brooks no argument. Then, breakfast with the family, beginning with a prayer, Bible reading and a song, his youngest daughter strumming along on her imaginary guitar. At work, he is a conscientious, marginal figure, neatly turned out in a suit the family can barely afford, a strong hand gripping the worn handle of his heavy leather briefcase. At home, he is indispensable. Master of the implausible geometries of packing the car for camping holidays, caretaker of myriad practical tasks, gentle taskmaster of Sunday afternoon arts and crafts sessions. He is stern, friendless, devoted, Occasional bursts of offbeat humour hinting at the anarchy stowed guiltily below decks. As each child's birthday swings round, he props himself at his bureau with a fistful of coloured felt tips and chuckles as he constructs elaborate, eccentric dioramas of home peopled by cartoon crocodiles, hedgehogs and tortoises, a small plane piloted by a grinning cat dragging the happy birthday across the top of the card. The man's eldest daughter reaches adolescence and rebels against the father she once idolised. He carefully prepares lengthy lectures which she suffers in silence, toes curling and uncurling in her sensible shoes. He finds a Christian summer camp that he hopes will help the girl stretch her wings in safety. She relishes the relative freedom of a week away from home, meets an older man and falls in love. Her boyfriend tall, handsome, cocky. The man is off balance, uncertain, seeing too much of his meticulously stowed self for comfort. The boyfriend smoothly assures the man of his respect for his teenage daughter, then gets her pregnant, carefully manipulating her inexperience. The man's world collapses. He weeps, shouts, hits his daughter hard once across the face with an open palm, spits prayers of disgust at his god. Every pore of the tiny, stifling house is clogged with his anger. The man assembles his family at the kitchen table and confesses to his children that he too once fathered a child with, as he puts it, an unmarried woman his knotted voice frayed with emotion. 
He has been unable to forgive himself and is unable to forgive his daughter. She sits her exams, bump swelling beneath an untucked school shirt, and leaves home to have her baby. The man reads and rereads the book of Job. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. Don't rock the boat You let the water in Don't rock the boat No, I can barely swim This bed is a boat That is barely afloat On the sea of our hopes we aspire and to glide into the smoothest of rides when chance and circumstance conspire. Don't rock the boat, you let the water in. Don't rock the boat, you know I can barely swim. Creek, as honest he seeps through the cracks in our compromise. It would be easier, you said, to sail solo instead, but sometimes it's kinder to lie. Don't rock the boat, you let the water in. Don't rock the boat, you know I can barely swim. On each side of the seat And you rock the gleam in your eyes The whiskey's the wind In your sails I bail Take my chance over the side Eight. Book of Man The man begins to write his own Book of Man. The heavily doodled title is surrounded by more sinister versions of the birthday card animals, a tall, thin toad with horns and a forked tail propped nonchalantly against the nipple double curve of the capital B, blocked in heavy blue biro. Brace yourself like a man. The man copies from his battered Bible, a sour grimace on his face next to a lovingly rendered phallus dangling hugely, obscenely from the nether regions of some cathartically awful man-beast. He copies text, annotates, riffs on the stupidity and allure of the Jobian restoration, where a new family is magicked in to replace the first brood of sons and daughters slaughtered by the wind in chapter one. He starts a separate page where he lists the trials as they mount up, 
a felt-tipped middle digit raised in salutation. Daughter, pregnant, underaged. Brain tumour diagnosed and removed. Left side of face, partly paralysed. Daughter marries badly. Boss visits and man loses job again. Son loses faith. Daughter divorces. Son trades medical school for a hopeless career as a musician. In brackets, idiot, circled and underlined. Another divorce. Son still single. It's a bitter, blasphemous brain dump of every heretical, suppressed thought and emotion the man has ever had. An awful, funny, private scrawl to the hand that he's been dealt the hand his children have dealt him, to his half-seen role in the years of unhappiness he and his family endure. And then, one cold winter day, when his wife is at work and the children have long since left home, he takes the stack of unbound printer paper outside, makes a furnace of the barbecue, and burns it, one page at a time. He squats, rests his head on the warm metal and cries. Loud enough for the neighbour's dog to hear and whine in sympathy. Loud enough for the village trees to rustle in empathy. Loud enough for the wind to blow a cooling breeze across his high forehead. Loud enough for his God to hear and say finally, Enough is enough. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., You have been listening to Book of Man, written by me, Rob Marr, and narrated by Josh O'Connor. I also wrote and performed the music. Mix was by Bill Garrity and Wayne Wilkins, mastering by Rupert Christie, artwork by Ben Yong Mills. With huge thanks to Josh O'Connor, Elizabeth Donnelly, Pip Cowell, Dan Simons, Kate Hall, Liz and Alec Frank, my family, and most of all, thank you to you for listening. 
please visit robmar.net for more information and an online treasure trove of archive material used in the making of this podcast. A single from this podcast will be released on November the 13th, 2020, with an album coming in early 2021.